Before I begin the sermon, I must confess, this scripture reading is a continuation of the larger story of David going back to the rape of Bathsheba and murder of Uriah. If you dig a bit deeper, you'll find the rape of Tamar, and today's reading shows the consequence of David's sin as well as the sin that ran through his household. As Pastor Ed said two weeks ago, while I cannot ignore that this passage is in our Bibles, I also want to be sensitive to those of you for whom this reading is painful. I apologize in advance if any of my words resurrect painful memories. All right, I've only got about 10 minutes to unpack a thick, challenging text, connect it to the whole sweeping history of salvation, and then make you see why it's good news for you today in your everyday life. If I go too long, there's a chance Ellen, our media specialist, will simply cut off the end of the sermon. So pay attention. For all of you who skipped Sunday school, this is what you need to know. The Lord told Nathan that the sword would never leave the house of David. Or in my contemporary translation, the Lord told Nathan that you know what would never stop hitting the fan for David. Nathan relayed that message to the king. Because David had sinned, committing adultery with Bathsheba, we would call that rape today, and then ensuring her husband Uriah would be killed to protect the king's secrets, David would not experience an end to the chaos, despair, violence, and death within his own home. There was no amount of cedar lining that could keep at bay what the Lord said would fill David's home. Absalom was David's third son. He marched into Jerusalem during David's move of the ark into the city. To better understand the scripture reading, we need to know that the sword that was promised by the Lord to never leave David's house landed in Absalom's wing of the royal household. Absalom's sister Tamar was raped by her half-brother Amnon. This, the collateral damage of David's sins had a devastating effect on his children, on his family. Absalom avenged Tamar by having his servants kill his half-brother after getting Amnon drunk. Sounds familiar, right? Absalom's father, King David, after taking Bathsheba from her home, tried to get her husband, Uriah, drunk to hide David's sins. And ultimately, servants of the king, led by Joab, ensured Uriah would be killed in battle. Absalom was guilty of the murder of a member of the royal family, and thus he went on the run. The sword shall never depart from the house of David. It will never let up, David, because of what you did. Sin has consequences. It's like karma. Years passed, and Absalom was allowed to return home, welcomed home by his father, but peace would not last between father and son. Absalom would seek out power for himself and ultimately declare himself to be king, driving David from his namesake city to lands beyond the Jordan River. The sword shall never depart from the house of David. Our text ends today with Absalom, who had betrayed his father and usurped his throne, but who was still nonetheless loved by his father, getting his head caught in the vice of two trees as the signifier of his royal status. A donkey rode on without him. The king's unfaithful but beloved son died hanging on a tree. So that's the story. Now, what exactly are we to make of it? 
You might expect me to say that this is a difficult text to read and to preach, and it is. Every commentary I consulted this week suggested choosing a different text. I considered doing so until Pastor Ed reminded me that this text is in the Revised Common Lectionary for a reason. This part of David's story takes us beyond the Sunday school felt board illustration of little David beating mighty Goliath and throws us into the mess and complexity that comes when abuse of power and ambition take our focus off of God. This is a difficult text to hear and then declare thanks be to God at the end because, frankly, there are a few redeeming qualities in this story, along with our other readings from 2 Samuel over the past three weeks. But that is exactly what makes this story good news. Before I get there, though, you have to know two more Sunday school type things. Number one, in the law, in the book of Deuteronomy, God declared that anyone who dies while hanging in a tree is cursed. Absalom dies a death cursed by God. The king's unfaithful, sinful, yet loved son dies in a cursed death. Number two, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Galatians says that Jesus Christ set you and me free from the curse of the law. Christ set us free from the just consequences of our unfaithfulness by becoming accursed for us. By dying on the cross, nailed and hung to the tree, Christ becomes accursed for you and for me. There do not seem to be any redeeming qualities to our text today. And that is because Absalom is all of us. Like Absalom, we betray the father who loves us in spite of us. Like Absalom, we are not content to be creatures. We instead try to usurp our father's role and authority. Like Absalom, the just wage for our sin is an accursed death upon a tree. And yet, and yet, here's the final thing you should know, the big takeaway from the whole Bible. We are all like Absalom. If Absalom had narrowly avoided that tree and was restored to the father who loves him. And that is because another king's son rode on a royal donkey to a tree on which he would cry, echoing the psalmist, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In his body, on the tree, he suffers the curse that belongs to every David and Absalom, every Goliath, every apostle, every sinner, and every saint. The curse that belongs to you and to me. The sword departs each and every one of our houses at the cross. No more does Nathan say it will never let up because of what you did. Sin has consequences, yes, but they have been borne by another for you. Grace is the exact opposite of karma. It is offensive, sure, but it's also amazing. Don't believe me? Here's what Bono had to say on the matter. You see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, 
or in physics, in physical laws, every action is met by an equal or opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. But Bono continues, and yet along comes this idea of grace to upend all of that as you reap, so will you sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Grace interrupts, if you like, the consequence of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to be my final judge. I'd be in deep stuff. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus Christ took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am, and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. The point of the death of Christ is that Christ took on the sins of the world so that what we put out did not come back to us, and that our sinful nature does not reap the obvious death. That's the point. It should keep us humbled. It's not our own good works that get us through the gates of heaven. Thanks, Bono. Chances are your family is not as messed up and sinful as David and Absalom's story. But I've been a pastor long enough. I've counseled enough of you to know that your family stories are close and that none of your family's story is perfect. I've been in a family long enough to know that no family's story is perfect. My family's story is far from perfect. So hear this good news. You have been set free from the curse. The Apostle Paul gets the last word. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us in order that, Christ, that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. I offer it to you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.